Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. If you could please find your seat, we're about to begin. Uh, welcome to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. My name is Russ Oates, and I'm the Deputy Director of External Relations here. Uh, thank you for coming to this important session of our series on global challenges. This series is a partnership between CSIS and the Knight Center for International Media at the University of Miami. You'll hear from uh, the university's Dr. Rama Prasad during the panel, but I also wanted to acknowledge Sanjeev Chatterjee, the executive director of the Knight Center. Uh, he is here with us today. I'm here to introduce Salil Shetty, who will provide some remarks before our moderator, Miriam Atash Nawabi, leads what will be a very insightful panel. Uh, you have Mr. Shetty's bio printed in the program, so I won't revisit the particulars of his career. But I will say, however, that our series with the University of Miami is focused on the Millennium Development Goals. Therefore, we could have no better person here to speak to, with us today than Mr. Shetty. Uh, since 2003, he has directed the UN's Millennium Campaign, which means he's tasked with uh, encouraging the achievement of the goals throughout the world. Mr. Shetty, the podium is yours. just need to make sure the technology works before I, before I start down. So first of all, let me thank the organizers, CSIS, for, for hosting the series on the MDGs and this particular uh, session as well. And it's great to see so many of you from all different institutions here. Um, I think the purpose of uh, my presentation today is to really give you a quick snapshot on where we are on the achievement of the goals, how far have we progressed. I think that will give enough of a basis to have the panel discussion. Uh, before I, I launch into this, I should just mention that the Millennium Campaign, which uh, I work for and some of my colleagues here who are sitting in front uh, work for, uh, the team here are the, are the folks who work on the North America part of the campaign. They're based here in DC. I sit in New York, so I have the global responsibility. But the campaign was set up by Kofi Annan uh, when he was the Secretary General. And the purpose of the campaign, the mandate of the campaign really is to take the goals to the people and to get the general public, citizens, and you know, people on the ground to get much more involved in the Millennium Goals. and So it doesn't just remain a process of governments alone, but how do we get citizens engaged? So I'll come back to that briefly in, in a short while. So um, as you know, the, I want to kind of just take a step back before we go into the state of affairs today. But when these goals were signed in the year 2000, and you may remember that 189 uh, countries signed up to these goals, the primary responsibility of achieving these goals were with developing countries, with poor countries. And essentially what they committed to was that they will incorporate these goals into their own national policies, plans, budgets, and that they will uh, become more accountable. And the Millennium Declaration is a, a sort of ringing call on human rights and right to development, etc., for those of you who've read it. So we, we must remember the, where, where we started from. Um, as part of this uh, global sort of compact, the richer countries or the developed countries committed themselves on goal eight. And goal eight is a long sort of laundry list, but the three key areas within goal eight, number one is the aid component, both volume of aid, but equally importantly, the quality of aid. The second is the debt cancellation process. And the third is to have a trading regime and trade rules which can actually help not just achieve the millennium goals, but sustain them over a longer period of time. So this was the sort of package which was agreed. And we should keep this in mind as we go into the discussion, I feel. Now, if we fast forward from there to uh, 2009, uh, and I always say that I personally used to be a little bit, when I, before I joined the UN, when the goals were first announced, 
I was myself a little bit skeptical. You know, you have these UN conferences, people come and sign all sorts of things and make all sorts of promises. But I must say that nine years later, I'm pleasantly surprised at how much progress we've managed to make. And I've just listed, I want to take you through very quickly a few things. I mean, number one, I think we should remember that uh, there have been many development fashions which come, you know, every decade or so you find something, a new buzzword, a new set of ideas. But I would suggest that this is probably one of the most durable uh, set of commitments which have remained through the so-called 9-11 war on terror, through uh, tsunamis. Many things have happened, but these have stayed and they've remained a very strong focus on human development, on poverty, through all the major global processes, Monterey, Paris, Accra. For those of you who are in this business, these words might mean a little bit more than the names of cities. But all of these were key milestones at the, at the global level, uh, the G8 process, now the G20 um, the regional bodies, the major regional bodies, whether it's the Africa Union, the South Asian Regional Committees, the Commission, the ASEAN, the European Union, for all of these, the MDGs are the sort of main framework which they use, uh, but also most importantly at the national level, and I'll come back to the national level time and again, really uh, it's influenced the national planning process, not just in the poorest countries, but even in middle-income countries like Brazil, Indonesia yesterday. In fact, we had the special envoy from Indonesia for the MDGs with us yesterday in, in New York. And it's become, uh, for those people who, who had difficulties with the Washington consensus, a kind of orthodox, uh, one-size-fits-all approach, this did become a counterpoint to have a more heterodox approach. Uh, and much more concretely, if you look at goal 8, about 35 countries plus have had their debts cancelled. This has increased poverty-focused expenditure significantly in most develop, developing countries which were debt-ridden. Uh, aid levels, and some of you might have seen the embargoed figures which have just been released of the OECD DAC numbers from 2009. Very significant increase in aid levels over the last 10 years. Now, we, we were just meeting a congressman earlier, and as I was talking to him, he said, but how do you say that this is all related to the Millennium Development Goals? And of course, there's no one-to-one -one correlation between the fact that we have goals and some of these things happening. But if you talk to most donors, certainly in the European capitals, the fact that there was a, a unifying framework within which we could all work, both developing countries and developed countries, has, I think, you know, given more confidence, given more uh, impetus to the, to the sort of global development process. The numbers are here. I think you, you're familiar with the, the kinds of things which have happened over the last 10 years. Again, the fact that we've had a period of good economic growth even in, in most developing countries, that we had less conflicts, all of those things have helped. There's no doubt about it. But the MDGs have helped significantly as well in my view. I'm not going to run through each one of these numbers, but you can see that uh, some of these achievements are not small. I mean, they're very significant in terms of orders of magnitude. Uh, really big, big changes have happened. And if you compare the period 1990 to 2000 with the period 2000 to 2009, the kinds of progress we've seen in the last decade are very significant. And I'll, I'll uh, show you a graphic now in terms of where we are on the goals as we speak today. Now, this graph basically uh, tells you that the shaded portion tells you how, far, how much of distance we've traveled and the unshaded portion is the distance left. And of course, this doesn't cover all the goals and all the targets, but it picks the key ones. And you can see from here that we have uh, big problems in relation to maternal mortality. We have uh, big problems on child mortality. But on many of the others, uh, it hasn't been bad at all. If you take the aggregates, we've done reasonably well on many of the goals. 
So I think that's the one thing. But the other thing you would always hear is that progress on average is good, but Africa is lagging behind. So we've just separated out here the data for Africa from developing regions as a whole. And again, you'll find that if you take the poverty index, there's significant reduction in poverty levels in Africa. Uh, of course, even more in other developing regions. But in Africa, you see significant reductions. Education, it's the same uh, here. George is going to say much more, I think, about education. He was just telling me that that's his primary area of work. But uh, significant increase in enrollment, of course, partly because we're starting from a lower base. So you can, you can see greater percentage increases, but uh, no mean achievement. If you take key indicators on health, the same thing, sub-Saharan Africa, big leap. So the idea that you know Africa is somehow not moving forward is not true. But to me, the, the most important conclusion that I would draw from the last 10 years uh, of, of actual concrete empirical or, you know, evidence on the ground is that some of the poorest countries, and I've listed a few here, are actually, doing, uh, are actually on track to achieving many of the goals. So, I mean, you take Rwanda. Rwanda has moved significantly forward and is on track on achieving four to five of the goals as we speak. Now, if Rwanda can do that, why is it that Burundi can't? You know, why, that, that's a question, in my view, we should be asking as to why we are seeing quite big progress in some in the part I come from, uh, and Jyotikar can confirm this, that Bangladesh and Nepal have moved much far ahead compared to India, which has had much higher economic growth. So I think these are the questions we should be asking. And I, I'll, I'll give you my uh, thoughts on why this is happening. But at the national level and at the sub-national level, there are enough cases to tell us that there have been very important gains over the last few years. If you take the last bullet point which I put here, Malawi, those of you who are following the agriculture and the food security issue, Malawi used to be a basket case until a few years ago. And in the last few years alone, they've turned around and become a major sort of showcase exporting uh, food to their neighbors. Um, and same thing with under five mortality, 40%. I used to work in Kenya myself, and if somebody had told me that Tanzania can reduce 30, uh, its child mortality by 30% in three years, I would have said that you're joking, it's not possible. But it's happened, and by doing a very simple set of things, we have been able to see very significant progress. Um, even on maternal mortality, and some of you might have read the Lancet article which came out a couple of days ago, and today's Washington Post, I think, is carrying the piece that. Uh, because we, were, we have been quoting the figure that half a million mothers are dying every year from childbirth. Uh, the Lancet article actually brings that down to 350,000, so very significant improvements. Now, I must say that on all of these, when I say there have been big improvements, it doesn't mean that there's any case for complacency. There's much more we need to do, but it's very important for us to understand that there has been very big progress, and therefore, as we look ahead from now to 2015, there is no question that if we get act together, we can make even more progress over a six-year period because we have some clear lessons which have been learned. We know what works, what doesn't work. That's really the main message I wanted to give today. Now, from my point of view, the, some of the key variables which have made a difference at the national level, which is, what, which is where it matters the most, number one is leadership from the top. Where there is no clear leadership and national ownership over these goals, we see less progress. Number two, it's not just repeating these global goals, but these goals have to be nationalized, customized, adapted. And today, again, we were just talking to somebody in one of the congressman's offices who's just come back from Vietnam. Now, Vietnam has taken these global goals, but they've converted them into Vietnam development goals. And they're serious about it. They've put resources behind it, their own domestic resources, and then they look outside for external resources. So you don't first look outside. 
first and foremost you look inside what can you do then you bring the international community behind it and of course the delivery mechanisms addressing uh, corruption accountability engaging citizens more public debate on these questions and countries where international donors are lining up behind national priorities rather than flying their own pet projects and their flags these are all the factors which are have really made a difference now uh, obviously for those of you who are following uh, the development sort of uh, you know industry if you want to look at it that way or the development business uh, you might look at this and say but that's so obvious you know that we we know all these things and i always say that's the thing it's it is obvious that's why we should do it and do it well over the next 6 years so there's no no big sort of mystery and no big surprise <clears throat> now looking ahead very quickly there's no shortage of crisis and it's an obstacle course we have the economic crisis we have the food crisis the climate crisis uh, i call a governance and exclusion crisis the trade talks are deadlocked so you have a trade crisis and we have conflicts in many countries so we could dwell on each of this for a long time and say you know everything is gloom and doom so let's go back home and you know give up but but that's i think that's that's not the the starting point for most people in this room anyway um I, I, from our point of view really at the end of the day we feel it's a matter of political choices if these goals if we want to achieve them we can achieve them there is no shortage of resources uh, we did some calculation on the <coughs> bailout question alone uh, 18 trillion dollars were given in the space of 2 years to the banks and the bailing out process the cumulative amount of aid over 49 years has been 2 trillion dollars so uh, if we want to find it we can find it the same with the amount of money we spend on arms and defense and of course uh, if our leaders in developing countries uh, reduce the amount that they quietly take away we should be able to achieve most of these goals and the last point i want to make really is that um, behind we we've talked a lot about what the millennium goals have done in terms of hard achievements but well, one of the less talked about issues is the extent to which they have been able to mobilize citizens and the publics in different parts of the world to put their weight behind these goals really that's what the millennium campaign works on so the grassroots movement uh, media i think uh, mario might be happy to know that we the media has been really s- central to the process you know we have mdg journalism awards mdg journalist groups in so many countries in africa and asia who are talking about this making it uh, you know public issue for discussion again nowhere close to where it should be but it's been a big part of how things have moved and all of this obviously leads to policy and practice change so uh, the campaigns have been very varied uh, you know you have somebody like president lula who's championed the goals in in latin america which is one of the few countries in the world which actually reduced inequality in the last 7 uh, years <clears throat> then we have and this this campaign is from my country from india where um, the Prime Minister Manmohan Singh is in this picture, and this campaign is called Nine Is Mine. And uh, the government of India, the the party in power, the Congress party, came to power promising six percent of gross national income was going to be like allocated for education and three percent for health. So the children in Delhi, with NGOs etc., got together and ran this campaign, saying that six plus three, which is nine, is mine. You know, and so there's a whole. I'm happy to talk more if you're interested. And that was quite impactful. The campaign there. and uh, similarly vadana todo abhiyan which is the national campaign which translates into keep your promise campaign uh, had this big demonstration in front of the parliament and during which we took a picture of this cmp is the common minimum program which is the platform the electoral platform on which the government came to power so they said you promised an elephant and you delivered a goat <laughs> so um 
and this is all over the world, the Sydney Opera House, uh, I mean, and Bangladesh, I mean, there's so many countries. And last year alone, the stand-up uh, campaign, which we've been running for the last three years, had 173 million people across the world standing up for the Millennium Development Goals, mainly from Africa and Asia, but also uh, from Europe and, and North America. Um, so I think for us, really, the key question, really, as we head to September, when we have the heads of state meeting for the Millennium Development Goals to review progress, uh, number one, I think we are very keen that we look at what's worked, what's not worked, have some clear lessons, and based on those lessons, we have a clear breakthrough action plan for the next five years. That's what every government should come with. And of course, we need a similar plan at the global level. We're very uh, you know, enthused by the fact that President Obama, on his own, has announced that the US is going to come with an action plan to the summit. We're still uh, trying to figure out the details of what will be in this plan, but hopefully some of our American friends on the panel will will tell us a bit more about uh, how this is moving forward. And I think a key, key issue for us is not to look only at aggregates, but to disaggregate, because uh, much of what I presented are aggregate uh, improvements. But we know that in the case of women, in the case of uh, excluded groups, they are still lagging behind. So the averages can be misleading. So we need disaggregated and local level information. And uh, finally, a crucial question is about accountability, because uh, we, and accountability is at two levels. Number one is accountability of developing countries, governments, to their own citizens, which is the most important one. And the second one is accountability of governments in developed countries to developing country governments, so the north-south accountability. And we need to talk about both of those because we have to remember that the goals were one which were based on mutual accountability and shared responsibility. So uh, there's a lot more to be said, but I've been given a tight... <laughs> Alicia, in terms of time, so I'm stopping here. And uh, the key message, certainly from my side, is that we've seen amazing progress, and in the next six years, a lot can be done. But the U.S. really has a very crucial role to play in this, not just in terms of aid, but also in terms of addressing the other questions like trade and uh, you know a shared responsibility. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. I want to welcome everyone again to the Global Challenges Series, which is sponsored by the Center for Strategic and International Studies and the University of Miami. Uh, this, this series was actually launched in the fall of last year. And when we were thinking about the concept and I was invited to participate, um, the idea came up to have the discussion of each session focus around one of the Millennium Development Goals, or perhaps in some cases a country's specific experience with their own MDGs. And so, so far we've had a session on Haiti's experience right before they had the unfortunate earthquake. We had something with the head of the World Food Program around Thanksgiving time, really thinking about food security issues. 
And we've had something on HIV AIDS with the Obama administration's new global ambassador for AIDS. And today we're really honored that the head of the UN campaign for these goals is here with us today. And in a short period of time, I think he did a wonderful job of giving you a picture of where the MDG started, what progress there's been, but what remains ahead. And today's program, we're really thinking about ahead to September, when, as you all know, heads of state gather in New York for annual meetings. And this year, there will be a summit on these MDGs. And I think it's an opportunity for countries in the developing world who have resources, maybe in this time a little bit less than they had before, but in the developing world, developing world as well, to come to the table and look at what their roles and responsibilities have been. Because at the end of the day, you have people in these countries that rely on these governments to work with the private sector and civil society in meeting these goals. Um, we're very happy today to have a very distinguished panel. What we'll be doing is I'll be asking each of them some questions. Um, they'll be providing their thoughts. And we'd like to leave a lot of time for a question and answer. So Russ will be letting me know when that period will start, because we want this to be a dialogue. Um, I'm sure many of you are much more knowledgeable about a lot of these goals than I am. My job is here to be a moderator. Um, and a lot of people here in Washington are working in different um, offices that may be looking at these goals or helping implement some of them for other countries. So um, you heard from Mr. Um, Shetty about his role with the campaign. To his right, we have Steve Morrison who joined CSIS about 10 years ago, and I think he's chaired almost every kind of task force that has been around. And you can see in your program materials what some of those task forces are, but mainly in the areas of foreign policy, foreign assistance, and public health uh, have been his specialties. Um, he's also worked um, in some un interesting other roles with USAID. I didn't know that you were one of the people who started the Office of Transition Initiatives, which was a new office for USAID to look at, I guess, situations where you need to respond quickly. Right. And that office is still doing good work today. And he's also had roles with, as a senior staff member with the House uh, Foreign Affairs Subcommittee on Africa, which is one of his countries of expertise. On my left, I have jo Jyotika Ramaprasad from the University of Miami. She's a professor of journalism, uh, working a lot not only in here now in the US at how journalism and media can be used to effectuate social change, but she's also worked on disaster preparedness, and um, aside from her role as a professor. So hopefully she'll be shedding some light on how media can be used to share these goals with local populations. And on her left, we have George Ingram, who has many, many years of experience with education, foreign assistance, and development. He's currently the senior vice president for public policy at the uh, Academy for Educational Development, which works on education programs worldwide and chairs the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition. Spent 22 years, I don't know how you lasted that long, as a senior staff member with the House Foreign Relations Committee, working on, obviously we need money for all this, and that's where that discussion begins here with Congress, um, and has had other roles starting nonprofits that have worked on education worldwide. So with those introductions, you know, let's get to the heart of the matter here. We have the summit coming up, and we're looking at where countries are. So, Salil, just to follow up first on your presentation, you mentioned there's some goals itself for this meeting, this summit. It's an opportunity to be looking ahead. What are your office's goals for this summit? Well, I think you know the, the most crucial thing is that we don't want this summit to come up with more 
you know rhetoric about how the goals are so important and you know we all stand behind them and we love them and you know we, we've crossed <laughs> that stage we we don't need more more talk we need action so we need an action plan and this action plan should not be based on our predisposed ideological sort of views but based on hard evidence on what's worked and what has not worked and this evidence must come from people on the ground from developing countries and from citizens and it should be backed by the international community so we need a clear action plan uh, so that's the first part and the second part is we feel that for the next 5 to 6 years we need a clear system of how we are going to be holding ourselves accountable because uh, it's very easy for our governments to come and you know to g8 and make some promises and not keep those promises so uh, much better because the current system of uh, mdg accountability is based on voluntary reporting so each country will come uh, they may or may not present a report and of course the head of state will make a grand speech and all of that but there's no hard accountability at both the levels i mentioned earlier one between the governments and their own people and second between the north and the south so we need a mutual accountability compact it's a win win sort of compact so we want some clear ideas on this following up on that so people can understand obviously you have so many heads of state coming and all these delegations is your office coming up with an action plan that you want these countries to sign on to or are you kind of trying to coordinate different action plans that they may be coming up with so i you know there's many processes going on in preparation for the summit right now so certainly the un system's job primarily at the country level is to support national governments to do their own analysis and come up with their own action plans but as i said earlier president obama for example said that you know he is going to come up with an action plan about how the us can support the mdgs and that's the right thing to do i mean the us government doesn't need any support from you know there's enough capacity but if it's burkina faso yeah the un system would support that process um george i want to go to you uh, how likely do you think it is that these mdgs will be met by 2015 well it's unlikely that all of the the goals will be met And for me the issue is not will each one of those goals be met. The issue is what's happened between 2000 and 2015. And has momentum and trend developed? The one I know the most about is education. And by our calculation there are probably 45 countries that will not meet the 2015 goal. But almost all of those countries within the following 10 to 15 years will come close to meeting the goal. And the issue moving forward from here is no longer going to be the issue that has been for the last 10 or 15 years, which is getting children into primary school. The issue and the challenge is going to be keeping them in primary school and getting them through to graduation and into secondary and into the workplace, and that's a success. You know, you're expertise is education you said some will have met some will be close to can you give us some examples of countries who are doing really well with meeting the mdgs with in the education area in the education area um almost all of latin america has done very well they started out in not bad shape but they have progressed asia has been a success story across the board india and china have been tremendous success stories um and in africa there are a number ethiopia Um there are other really very strong success some of the strongest success stories are in Africa because they started from a lower base. Um the countries that are not doing so well why do you think that they haven't progressed as much if they could have? Well, it's a combination of factors. Some of them 10 or 5 or 10 of them are are wracked by internal conflict. And so they uh, another group of a few countries have very weak governments. 
other countries you haven't had the political will. The countries, in countries where you don't have internal conflict and really weak government, it really boils down to an issue of governmental priority and, and will. Um, I want obviously all of these efforts take money. And as we know with the global financial crisis that started two years ago, that's obviously an issue that countries are looking at. Do you think that, you know, you gave some numbers though showing relatively that there may be resources out there, but the priorities are still in areas that are not showing the same commitment to development as there is to defense or arms. Do you think that the financial situation has impacted how much the summit can lead going forward? Well, there's no question that the last two years, or you could say three years, there's been a profound impact of the economic downturn in, in various ways. I mean, it's, it's, it's been a decline of, of, of donor flows. It's been a decline of trade. It's been a decline of remittances and, and growth within the, the key countries. And the, the Secretary General's review, most recent review, uh, makes this case that... Um, uh, pretty dramatic progress across many of these uh, goals up to about 2007 and then, and then some significant stall or regression and makes this argument that restored economic growth and vitality is absolutely fundamental to moving forward in this next phase. Building on this base of, of progress that we've seen where you've had countries embrace this and you've had had um, uh, a new way of going about doing uh, a, a assistance and building commitments to target these goals. Um, when we get to September, as we roll up towards September, um, I think there's going to be a little bit of anxiety around, around this whole question of resource flows because, uh, first of all, we're hitting the five-year mark of the Glen Eagle commitments that were made uh, by the G8 uh, to uh, 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 elevate, to, to double assistance and across the, the OECD membership to move from 80 to $130 billion a year. There's dramatic shortfalls that are being seen there on the order of about $17 billion shortfall. And within that, they were supposed to double, donors were supposed to double the flows to Africa. Uh, and that's, fallen, that's been less than half achieved. So... Uh, on the dollar markers, uh, uh, it's not a great story. From a U.S. standpoint, the U.S. His, the U.S. story and the story in the U.K. in particular uh, is pretty good. I mean, the, the um, uh, Washington in the Bush administration and now carrying forward in the Obama administration has done quite well at increase, increasing uh, assistance levels, innovating, uh, uh, moving towards accept embrace of many of the principles that were laid out in the way that aid should be delivered um, in that period. And, and President Obama has promised to double the aid for uh, the UN Millennium Development Goals. Do you see that happening? I think we, we see some pretty significant progress in the major uh, foreign assistance uh, initiatives. I mean, of the first three years of the Global Health Initiative, which is a $63 billion six-year commitment, in the first three years, which have been tough economically, we're 43% of the way there. Uh, we have a major food security initiative that's unfolding. Uh, we have uh, several other related initiatives so that uh, it's promising. It's promising even against a very, very difficult uh, political situation in terms of uh, the decay of partisanship, um, of bipartisanship, 
uh, and, uh, and, and really tough, enormously difficult budget and deficit situations, um, the, the things have gone reasonably well. That doesn't guarantee that it's not going to get uh, more difficult uh, in the next year or two. And actually, in, in a Congress that is noted for the lack of bipartisanship, this is one area in which there's been strong agreement among Democrats and Republicans. And the, the Congress this past year gave the President most, almost all of what he asked, not quite all. I want to move to Jyoti. It's obviously very important for people to know what these goals are, how it impacts them, not only in the developing side, but let's look at countries like the U.S. where Congress has to try to appropriate money. Working within you know, the University of Miami's journalism school, do you think in terms of outreach, do you think there's enough outreach to Americans about why it's important for our country here to be giving to these kind of campaigns? I don't think so. Uh, and I, you know, I come from the School of Communication, so I <laughs> have the bias of saying that there should always be more communication. But I also say this from experience. Uh, just uh, I teach uh, several classes, and it's really hard uh, to get students uh, you know, who actually know what the MDGs are or what it means for the United States or for the rest of the world. And so I think uh, certainly a lot more work needs to be done as far as communicating about the MDGs to the American population. And in the developing side, I mean, you've worked on the ground in East Africa, Southeast Asia. Um, what was your experience in terms of trying to translate these goals into things that people there could understand and for themselves to also take responsibility? Right. I actually have not worked on all the MDGs or overall on all the MDGs, but I work mostly with, in HIV AIDS in East Africa and in India, South Asia, actually. Um, and I've worked, I've worked in disaster preparedness. And I have walked the slums of Uganda and have been to the drop-in centers of the community-based organizations of men who have sex with men. So I'm speaking from experience on the ground uh, and not from the policy level. And I can tell you that um, while the MDGs may not be something that the population is aware of because of the fact that they're working on a specific issue, uh, the need for communication is tremendous. And I would urge um, almost all policymakers and people who are you know, funding, uh, funding organizations not only to communicate to the public about the MDGs, but to include in all of their budgets a line item not just for journalism, which Mr. Shetty uh, presented, but also for dialogic, participatory, and um, behavior change communication. Now, many of the well-funded projects that I've seen, that I've worked with in Uganda, East Africa, South Asia, do have at the, at the top levels good experience in and skills and knowledge about uh, what communication is required. But I think today most of the work that's being done in development in the third world countries is being done with uh, local NGOs, local CBOs, and the money filters down to these organizations, and they do excellent work. They do really good work. But the tendency is if it's HIV AIDS, it's medicalized. If it's disaster, it's engineerized. And people don't think about communication. There's not a single social issue, I believe, that doesn't have communication at the heart of it. And so that, and must, that funding is absolutely necessary, I believe. And following up on that issue of communication, so in terms of you know, these campaigns and their really catchy phrases like the ones you described that can help people uh, visualize these in a more simple way, you were running the global advocacy mm -hmm. side of this for many years. 
Do you think enough is being done to help people understand that developed countries are helping them? Because sometimes there seems to be a gap where people in the developing world may not be seeing or feeling that countries with more resources are even trying to help them. Well, I mean, most of the development in the world doesn't happen through external aid. It happens through what people themselves do and then through the domestic resources of national governments. That's a hard fact. But um, I do want to kind of come back to the question you're asking about communications in relation to the U.S. citizens. And I think there, certainly we've not done a very good job because, you know, every time you have a survey of what the American public thinks, we, we get the same answer that they're totally confused. And you know they think that the that the budget which is going towards international development assistance is in orders of magnitude which are nowhere close to the reality. In fact, they mix it up with the defense budget, and there's utter confusion. So we've not really helped. We probably added to the confusion by whatever we are doing. So <laughs> we need to really you know sit back and ask ourselves, and and that really matters because at the end of the day, the congressmen or you know the and I remember President Obama saying after the health care thing, he actually spoke on television. He said every single email you guys sent, he was addressing the public. Every single postcard you sent, don't think it didn't make a difference. It did. Now, how many emails and postcards are Americans writing? to the congressman and to the president, to the administration on these issues. I mean, there are few efforts here and there, but there's still you know, a, a trickle yeah. compared to what should I happen. want to second that because I, there's you know, less than 1% of uh, uh, the, uh, um, you know, the funding given by the United States is less than 1% of its uh, national uh, product. And yet the public image is that there's a lot of funding going from the U.S., so I think that certainly, but even with that funding, I mean, good work is being done, and that the idea of this is not either, the American public is not aware of it, and neither is the public abroad, I think, so aware of it. So we definitely need more communication yes. to people in developed countries as well as in the developing right, world. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to progress that's being made. You showed some graphs showing relative progress in the last few years. Um, you showed some countries who have done very well that you said pleasantly surprised you. Can you give us some examples of countries that haven't done well but that you think could? You said it's a matter of political will. And what countries do you think could be doing better but are just not taking action? Well, I mean, I, I can start with mine, <laughs> uh, <laughs> India, and I think uh, Jyotika's of Indian origin, so we have two. And, you know, if, um, w if you look at, a, at, if you do a population based mapping and you look at which where, where are the biggest problems on the MDGs, if you look at it in terms of the numbers of people, the problem is actually not in Africa, it's in Asia. I mean, we've had successes, but in relation to the population, I mean, if India and Bangladesh and Pakistan and Indonesia and Philippines don't meet the MDGs, the world doesn't meet the MDGs. And we have big problem that I was comparing it. If you take Bangladesh and Nepal, which are our neighboring countries, and Bangladesh has and gone through so many political problems, but despite that, Nepal has gone through a massive internal civil conflict. But despite that, they on particularly on health indicators, they do much better than India. And that's because India's investment in health is way lower than most of its uh, neighbors. So it's you know it's not uh, again rocket science. You know, and so it, those are choices which we are making. You know, government is making. So it's easier for me to be critical of my own government uh, <laughs> than others. But I mean, you can you can look at it. I mean, I, I was saying. When Malawi can do this in relation to agriculture, what is wrong with the other SADC countries? Why can't they do that? Steve, you uh, had mentioned to me earlier that the UNDP has actually come out with some case studies looking at some countries who have done really well and to perhaps 
share that information with others so people can learn. Can you give some examples of some of the countries that were featured, and then also your opinion about which some countries could be doing better on meeting these goals? Well, UNDP has taken on preparing these, these case studies to show the root causes for the basic drivers for success over the last, uh, over the last 10 years. So those, aren't, those aren't completed yet, as far as I know, but they're pretty far along. Um, and the cases that you would expect to see would be the Ghana and Tanzania, Okay, the, the, and we, you, you indicated a number of those in your, in your, in your slide. And I think those are the um, uh, uh, potentially a very effective way at capturing for a, uh, a popular audience what we're talking about, which is countries moving their population forward in an extended way over the long term across multiple uh, parameters, where you're talking about education, extreme poverty, uh, the multiple um, uh, health parameters, uh, education, etc., and um, being able to uh, make the case that there's been a, uh, a transition that's happened in this period. So those will be, as I understand, those will become available in the, in the lead-up to September in trying to shape the discourse. Um, uh, you, you, you can fill us in a bit more on that. Can I come back to the question around the MDGs and the American public? Um, because I think that's a very important issue as we look to September. Um, you're right that in the dialogue that goes on but among policy, between policymakers and the American public around development assistance or dollars that go outside our country, MDGs are not the, a central part of that, uh, of that lexicon <laughs> that's used. It's a different kind of language and reference points that have been used over time. And, and we also have people who say, well, we have a lot of economic problems here at home. We're losing jobs. Why should we be allocating more money towards helping other countries? Right. We've had a long history of deep skepticism around foreign assistance, uh, but we've also had, over the last 10 years, uh, sig a significant uh, advances uh, in the innovation and the levels of U.S. foreign aid that have, uh, that have go gone forward and the support they've derived from an American people. So... That's significant progress. And I think as we look forward to September, we need to keep in mind a couple things. One is, uh, this is an administration that's made maternal and child health a centerpiece of its global health initiative. And that remains, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, MDGs 4 and 5, uh, and how do we move forward on that? Very, very important. And as Salil indicated, the Lancet piece of the 12th, just two days back, showing that there has been significant gains recently in the maternal uh, uh, morbidity and mortality, the very promising sort of work that can build in that. So this administration is, has, has, has made this the centerpiece of its global health initiative. This is an administration that's undertaken a review of its whole development policy framework over the last uh, almost year and a half, is going to complete that process, and in, that will be the foundation for the president going forward and talking. Now, the MDGs are probably not going to be, and George, correct me here, I'm not, MDGs I don't expect are going to be the, the first words out of the mouth of the president if, as he goes to the summit and talks about U.S. commitments on, 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 um, on achieving these goals. But uh, certainly the, um, he goes in with a good story to tell about the kind of the vitality of U.S. programs. Oh. And he'll have a review, and he can talk about that as well. George, can you add on that in terms of process? I know sometimes that can get a bit boring, but to understand where we are, there's this quadrennial review process that the U.S. is undertaking 
that you mentioned, how do the MDGs factor into that and what, what kind of things are, is the administration looking that into in preparation for this summit? Well, the, we are expecting that the, the QDDR, the Quadrennial Development and Diplomacy Review, uh, the interim report will be released in the next several weeks, um, will be finalized in September. We're expecting the parallel presidential study directive on development to come out of, to be finished in the White House in the next several weeks. That will not be a public document, but both of them are the first ever serious reviews by the U.S. government to, to try to develop a plan for how we should approach development. And I would expect that you will see the president talking about the MDGs. I think what's the important point is, while you can't get an interesting dialogue with the American people over the MDGs or with members of Congress, I just took another look at all the eight of them. I can talk to the American people about every one of those goals, and the American people will say, yes, I'm with you. I mean, the 25 years of public polling show that the American people, up to 75, 85%, want the U.S. to be involved in educating children, in saving lives, in ending poverty, uh, in dealing with environmental issues. So, so it's really the support, it's, it's way. the way you communicate. And you have to adjust your communication to fit the American mindset. Um, I want to follow up mm -hmm. on the issue of civil society's role in all of this. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes we look at these goals and we think government should come forward with all the solutions, the actions plans, but obviously you can't work without people who really believe in it. You worked with the number of NGOs on the ground you mm -hmm. mentioned. Um, do you think that there's more capacity building needed of civil society so that they can implement these projects better? Right, and that I'm talking at the grassroots level here, and that's essentially the point I was trying to make, is that at the grassroots level, capacity building and communication needs to be reinforced and continued. I mean, what happens, of course, is there's a lot of turnover, and so we need a continuous inflow of this capacity building, not just with journalists. I mean, when you map communication to make social change, journalism is one end of it, but that this whole other dialogic, strategic, participatory communication and behavior change communication, which really requires that people at the ground level have the skills to be able to do the research to figure out which messages work with which groups of people and so on. And I, I just do want to follow up on, on the point we've been discussing. I completely agree with you that maybe the lexicon of the MDG, the words MDG maybe is not what people are aware of either in the United States or in the rest of the world. And, the, and they're much more aware of issues when you talk about poverty and HIV AIDS and so on. So they do not relate it to the MDGs. They're also more aware, I think, within the United States and abroad of private foundations doing work. But I'm not so sure how much they're aware of how much the U.S. government is doing. And so I just wanted to make, like, they all know about the Clinton Foundation. <laughs> they know about Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. If you go to India, everybody's talking about that. You know, everyone's talking about it in, in you so know, So maybe in the Africa. U.S. government needs so to <laughs> communicate better with the people about what it is right. achieving. And maybe in yeah. a language that, you know, people can that understand. translates the MDGs into. Yeah. Uh, so they'll, picking up on that, you know, we think of government, we think of the nonprofits, you know, but... Isn't there a big role for the private sector who may hold solutions to doing something better? Is In terms of the funding, like if there's a company sitting out there and they've got some great product or service that can really have a development application, can they be a part of this? Is there funding that they could be receiving to work in developing countries? Or is this pretty much government-driven, civil society-driven? No, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, if, if you go into, say, a rural part of uh, 
Africa or Asia. And if you say IBM, I mean, it's like saying MDG here. What does it mean? Nothing. There are three letters. Uh, we've managed to make PEPSI something which everybody knows. Mm. What is PEPSI? It's nothing. You know, so I, I don't think it's a letters, uh, you know, that combination. You can string any three letters and make it known. But uh, when you put an investment behind it, if Pepsi or IBM is, uh, is promoting itself, there's some serious resources which go behind it to, to make everybody aware. And I mean, that's an area, by the way, you're asking about the role of the private sector. And we work very closely with some of the big communications firms who have given massive pro bono support to the campaign. Uh, we are now working with some, some of the largest mobile phone companies because you, know, you were talking about new ways of communicating. Um, we, we might have no internet access, but almost nobody now, even in any village in Africa, Asia, there's no village where, where there's no mobile phone. You know? So using these things in a very innovative, creative way, we're looking at all those possibilities. And uh, in the UN context, there are, there are many ways in which the private sector can engage in this process. And uh, when, I, when I gave the examples of Rwanda, etc., these are also countries where the private sector has played a very crucial role. There's no question about it. But at the end of the day, I mean, if you take uh, you know, public education, um, it's, it's not really conceivable that primary education can be done at a large scale, you know, by Coca-Cola, for example. And it's not their thing. So it'll, it'll, you, know, you cannot displace the responsibility of governments to provide basic services to their citizens. So it's not an either-or. There's interesting partnerships which are possible. But one other point I wanted to make in relation to the U.S., you know, the points that Stephen made, I think uh, there's no question that the U.S. government under both uh, administrations have done a lot more than had been done in the past. There's no question about it. We have to, we have to accept it. We, there are two difficulties we have. One is that it's not just a problem, not just a discussion about how much additional money is coming, but it's a matter of you know, how that money is being used. Uh, the fact of the matter is that most of the money from the U.S. doesn't go to the poorest countries. It doesn't go towards Millennium Development Goals. It's it goes for, you know, the four countries, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iraq, and I don't know, maybe just the three account for 60% of total foreign aid, if I'm right, Stephen. I don't know if the numbers are absolutely accurate at this point in time, but, you know, more or less that's the kind of orders of magnitude we're talking about. And there are 22 to 40 agencies who run this missionary, so it's really good that this, uh, and I know that MoFan and others are working towards the whole process, the QDR, etc., to think mm -hmm. of how we can reform this. So, and that doesn't require more money. You know, actually, it requires reorganizing ourselves. So, it's, we are in an economic crisis, a good time to get our act together. Um, Steve, you were on the Hill for so many years. Do you see support for the U.S.? Because I've heard this complaint before that, like, for example, European countries will put monies in U.N. funds and trust funds that then a government could better coordinate, but that the U.S. uses mainly USAID and then it goes to U.S. contractors mainly. Do you think that's working and that's a good way to be allocating the money because we can monitor it perhaps ourselves? Or do you think that, as Salil said, the money should be going more to the overall funds that are working on these issues globally? It's both. I mean, this is, this is an administration that wants to rebuild its institutions for foreign assistance, its bilateral institutions and its capacities, and have a more integrated approach and build support on the Hill and among the American people for that. So that's an objective. There's no question. There's also a strong emphasis on, on re-engaging in multilateral, in the multilateral setting in a more effective way. Uh, and I think that's part of what we're going to see uh, as we get to the G8, 
which we haven't talked about here, but as a, as in a very important step that will happen before we get to the UN summit uh, in September, we're going to have several intermediate steps at which there's going to be an effort by the United States and others to try and bring, bring other powerful donors online towards these common sets of goals. Uh, I don't think, if you look at, I mean, if you look at assistance with respect to those flows going in to places where there's active conflict, Afghanistan, uh, Iraq, that's, that's one category of, of states. If you look at where the Food Security Initiative or where the, uh, where the Global Health Initiative is going, those, are the, the, those flows, which are very, very substantial, are, going, are predominantly going to a subset of countries that are that are in Africa so, and so you with some in South Asia. So you think the resources are being allocated, pretty much meeting the conflict needs as well as global needs on issues. Yes, I mean in the in the course in the eight year course of the Bush administration, we tripled the aid flows to Africa, U.S. aid flows to Africa, and we're now in the midst of of, of doubling those aid flows. And that's that has nothing to do with Iraq or Afghanistan. I think um, if you look at, at at the Global Health Initiative and the Food Security Initiative you'll see indications of where the administration may be going. And that is putting money both bilaterally and multilaterally, much greater international collaboration, uh, more local ownership, uh, more focus on results and accountability. We'll see if all that comes out of it, but that's what the plans are. And similarly with Haiti. Uh, The the, the initial planning for Haiti seemed to be similar principles that are being used to design that assistance. I want to touch on the issue of meeting these goals. And, you know, there's some countries close to, some of that have exceeded. In the area of education, let's take that as an example. You mentioned some countries have gotten to a certain goal. But looking at this summit, will there be any look at kind of adding on a new aspect of that goal for countries? It's kind of like school. You know, you're performing better, so we're going to give you another higher goal to reach the next time around. (laughs) Do you think that should be done to keep progress, or should we just stay at this with these factors? I don't think that should be done now. I think that's to be confronted in 2015. Um, and I think it's happening in other venues. It's happening in the fast track initi- The EFA Fast Track Initiative is beginning to no longer focus just on primary education and moving into secondary. And other venues are looking more at workforce. So there, there are other venues that can deal with the success stories and where they should be moving to. But also, I think, Mariam, the, I mean, in education, the big challenge is quality now. You know? So, right. And those countries who have now managed to get the kids in school are having to ask themselves, we've got them in school, which is great. How do we make sure there's better quality? But if you ask the reverse question of what you asked, like if you have a country which is very successful, should we give them a higher goal? You could also mm-hmm. ask the opposite question. You know, if you're very unsuccessful, do you want to bring it down a bit? And uh, the answer is no, because they're they're very minimalist in their you know expectations. But the most important thing for us to remember is in 2000 when these goals were signed, I don't think anybody expected all the countries in the world to achieve all the goals and targets by 2015. That there was no such naive expectation. The important thing, as George said, is are we moving in the right direction? Are we moving quickly enough? And but is there an argument to be made for performance-driven where countries who are doing better, because if it is a matter of political leadership, shouldn't the governments who are doing better perhaps get more funding or be helped to take to the next level rather than waiting for all the laggers to kind of catch up with them? No, but that's, the, you know, Stephen and I, we need to have a longer discussion of this because uh, by and large where aid donors are following 
the agreed principles of OECD DAC in Paris and Accra, then the money is given based on performance and need. It's a combination of the two. But if you're driven by political criteria on where you're going to give your money based on geostrategic imperatives, then it's a different logic, you know. So, and I think what you're seeing in those countries that have had success in education and have gotten most of their children in primary school and through it, fun. then there's a, a self-fulfilling dynamic in that country. And the populace is demanding the next steps of better quality, secondary, whatnot. You get in a better development cycle. I want to also touch on, uh, before we take questions, uh, the issue of, again, communicating what's happening. Um, as many of you may know, uh, the Secretary General issued a report called Keeping the Promise just last month. Mm -hmm. And he believes that most of these goals can be met and that we shouldn't change the date. There's been some call for, well, let's push the date back so we can give some more time. But he wants to stay on target. Um, you know, sometimes these reports, besides, you know, the development business, as you said, for the average person, it can be difficult to really get any meaning from them. Do you think the UN itself could be doing things to kind of take these reports and make them a little bit more dynamic for people here in the U.S. as well as in other countries to really understand where we are? Yeah, probably they could, and, and probably they are to some extent, but we've also got to understand that the people on the other side are journalists who are spreading the word, and they have their own imperatives and their own routines. And, and so the message that we want to communicate is not necessarily always the message that the journalists are taking from us because they are independent, you know, objective they look for all the facts and all the information. So there's a, a little bit of a gap always between what we might want to communicate and where the journalist's position is. So, you know, that is part of the problem, I think. Uh, um, but yes, the, you know, everyone could be always doing more to communicate better. I just want to quickly also respond to your other question about performance-based, um, you know, driving um, whether aid should be driven by performance. And I really feel that that should not be the only criteria. Need is extremely important because while governments might be impeding progress and therefore we are not, they're not as far along as they should be, at the, at the basic bottom line is there are people living in that country who are seriously affected by these problems. And I think we have to keep the human face in front of us when we talk about development. And we can't just think about performance which is important, I'm not negating it. And measuring performance is another huge area of disagreement. But I think we should never, if we work in this field of social change, we have to keep the human being in front of us. And unless we have a passion and empathy for that, I don't think we should be in this field. <laughs> well, I think that's a really good thought to keep in mind. And now let's engage our audience to see what questions they may have of our guests. If you can just please identify yourself, your organization, and if you have a question for a specific guest, let us know. There's a microphone. Please. Hi, my name is Claire Moran from the British Embassy. Um, firstly, just to say thanks for hosting this event. I think it's been really great. Um, I've been struck by kind of the lack of noise and conversation around the summit um, here in this town. So I think it's great to kind of start that process and elevate the issues. Um, wanted to say in the UK we're sort of very fortunate we have a, a kind of hugely talented and active civil society kind of campaigning on development uh, but the other thing that we have we have an international development act that actually uh, requires the UK government um, to basically to educate our citizens about development so not to kind of promote uh, DFID or British aid but to educate um, school children on development um, and that's obviously a kind of contrast to some of the legal provisions here. So I'd just be interested to hear views on um, whether you think um, that's something the U.S. should consider 
and around how, how do you get development into national curriculums. Is there anyone who wants to take that on? Yeah, I, can I give a quick yeah, response sure. to it? Because I think you know, there's enough uh, studies done on this that there's a high correlation between uh, the proportion or volume of money that governments give and the proportion they invest in development education in their own publics. And that's the Nordic countries are a classic case. Mm. Uh, you know, like 10, 20, 30 years of education and debate on these questions have now made this uh, cross-party agreement. You know, that 0.7% of GNI. There can be a big argument as to whether it should go to 1% or not. As you know, the US is at about 0.19 or so right now of GNI. So uh, there's, there's no question that if you don't have an informed public on these issues, you're not going to get governments to actually keep these commitments. So I very much subscribe to that. I mean, endorse that thought. Now, the, the, the U.S. Has a, has a law that prohibits the U.S. government, the uh, State Department now, USA, USIA, from showing in the United States any films that it produces that are shown overseas. And the Congress has to pass a special resolution to allow that movie, that film of America, to be shown here. And there's been this attitude in the Congress that development education is sort of a form of propaganda and should not be funded by the U.S. government. So the big change that needs to be made in this country is to convince the Congress that it should support helping to educate the American people on these issues. May I add a couple things Please to that? Uh, I agree entirely um, that any effort in Congress at the moment to put forward some legislative initiative that would mandate uh, talking to the American people about international development would backfire in the current climate. Um, over, a long, over the long haul, getting Congress to think differently and relax some of, those, some of those barriers would be quite helpful. There are other instruments, I think, that are, that are much more effective. Uh, we, we now have campaigns modeled after some of the UK-based campaigns, the one campaign here, which have, you know, two and a half million people on their rolls, and reach an American public uh, in a, in a, through a variety of very innovative ways. We have foundations that are very powerful and new that engage the American people. We have the leadership. We had President Clinton. We had Bill Gates testifying before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee just a short while back. So we have a different, we have a different climate um, uh, of discussion. And I think we have an, an outlook within the leadership of this administration about the need to engage directly with the American public through other fora to talk about these issues. And that is very promising. There's no barrier to the President or the Secretary of State um, uh, talking about these matters. One last point, which is what's most important, I think, in this climate, is that there be uh, uh, smart, centrist Republicans talking to the American people about these issues. Because the champions of foreign assistance on the Republican side uh, have shrunk in numbers in, in recent years. There's still, there are still uh, advocates, but given the breakdown of bipartisanship on other fronts, there's a real risk of our foreign assistance uh, budget uh, getting caught in that crossfire. And I think when you have uh, pre former President Bush speaking out about foreign aid to Haiti and other things, that's very, very important. Well, following up on that, maybe we need to not rely so much on the politicians, but sometimes celebrities can be very useful. When Angelina Jolie comes to town, people, you know, American people then listen to, well, why was she there and what was she talking about? Do you think, you know, you're working outside of Washington that celebrities can have a role in this? Uh, yes, celebrities are always a big draw. 
especially with the young people. So, I mean, I think sometimes they're very useful in communicating messages. And they've been used successfully all over the world for different campaigns from the, you know, grassroots all the way up to the top. So, yes, they, they, they have a little bit of the, you know, the ability to attract attention. attention and I think that's the issues. Good. I saw a question up here first, the second row. I'm Bob Hershey. I'm a consultant. Uh, to what extent can the internet help in this, in getting donors on board and in getting consensus among the receiving people on what they need? Anybody want to address internet issues? You're using the internet for this campaign. You have the website up there, so. Yeah, it's still up there. Still up there? <laughs> I mean, there's, there's no, I, the fact of the matter is, I think if you have to choose in the developing world, if you have to choose between the internet and mobile phones, I'd any day go for mobile phones because the access is way higher. But certainly in the developed economies where we have very good access to the internet, it's already being used. I mean, a lot of these, the one campaigns, two million um, members, which uh, Stephen just mentioned, it's all happened through the net. And, and we have uh, 25,000 Facebook fans who uh, my kids have told me not to go on Facebook, so I can't really give you more. <laughs> I don't know enough about it, but certainly 25,000 Facebook fans, we've, we've got them in a very short period of time. It's just happened, and we just have one intern working on it for the last few months. And so, obviously, if we, if we don't use it, then we are missing uh, something, uh, major opportunities. Right. I just want to reinforce that, that the Internet is fine for places which have access, but most of the developing world still does not have that capability, and the mobile phone is the medium, really. So we have to adjust our messages now, you know, short, sweet messages that can be sent on mobile phones, very different from what you would do on the internet. So the message would have to be tailored for the technology, and it's the mobile phone that's really the technology. We always have radio, which a lot of countries have And there's, have of course, a lot of radio, yeah, and especially in oral culture, especially in Africa, or where there's illiteracy, Radio is an excellent medium, too. Yeah. I think the Internet is much more important on mobilizing the audience and the network you already have than it is doing the initial communication to try to convince them to get to your cause. Very good words of advice. Over here on the left-hand side, if you could wait for the microphone, please. Mike McDonald. Um, I'm working on race to resilience in Haiti. Um, I'm wondering about the MDG monitor, uh, the ability to actually drive the MDGs down into the communities and perhaps going beyond the MDGs to much more specific indicators that we can measure at the community level. Uh, do you have any comments about that, uh, Salil Shetty? I, I mean, uh, there's, I'm not sure if you're specifically, Mike, referring to, because there is something called the MDG monitor, which has been set up by... UNDP. I'm not sure if you're referring to that or more broadly because uh, that, that the MDG monitor, for those of you who don't know it, it's a sort of a central database where, and it's using uh, a lot of technology where you can use interactive maps and you can click and drill down. So if you're interested in a particular goal in a particular country, you can click on it and get information on that. Uh, and that's as good as the data we have and, you know, the data is shaky in many places. But uh, we are looking at another initiative using mobile phones, which we are calling Citizens MDG Monitoring, and that's just sort of, it's still in a design stage, and just to give you an example, so in rural Tanzania, if you want to, if, you, if a water point is not working, 
uh, you can either go and find the water engineer or today because of the mobile phones we can actually send a text message saying that this is not working and, and aggregating that to the national level making sure that the prime minister gets a copy of the report so some action is taken on that and if action is not taken in a week's time we also give a copy to the press so everybody knows. So bypassing sometimes the government who you would have relied on to get this information you're the government will have its own system of uh, monitoring but it's very useful to have an independent citizens monitoring process which you know cuts out a lot of the distortion so very good um, over here my name is Diana Milner I'm with bread for the world and we work to end hunger and poverty uh, both here and uh, domestically and abroad I wanted to go back to a point that uh, mr. Shetty made uh, a while back about not just the volume of aid, um, but the quality of aid. Um, and with respect to the MDGs, what are some more specific indicators or uh, metrics uh, that we can look at in terms of um, assessing whether aid has become, the delivery of aid has become more effective, whether we've uh, done a better job um, with that? Uh, so if it's actually addressed to the entire panel. Go ahead. You, you, and then maybe you, because you ha you're part of this modernizing <laughs> U.S. foreign assistance network. So, but I, in, we've actually got a document which I don't know if we have enough copies. We've jointly published a, a document, so also on our website with OECD DAC on MDGs and aid effectiveness, and it's very much related to the Paris Declaration and the Accra Agenda for Action. I certainly believe that uh, the fact that we have a common framework like the MDGs, it's already helped to improve uh, some of the processes. And you know, because the big problem we have is the lack of harmonization. Each donor comes with their own ideas, etc., and that's reduced considerably by the fact that we, at least we have some broadly agreed uh, set of goals. And so, but I'm happy to go into more details because some of it is actually quite you know, technical in a sense, and I'm not sure if it's of common interest to everybody, but the document is available, happy to share it with you. What we can do is, I know Russ, he posts a lot of the stuff from these panels, and both your presentation, I saw some people trying to take note, as well as perhaps that document, and if we could make it available on the site for this specific program, sure. then you can access it from there. Um, a question here and then over here. Uh, Pauline Muchina from Kenya, and... Um, as a Kenyan, I'm always concerned about um, the attitude of always giving Africans aid or developing country aid, and not really focusing on uh, equal trade policies and tariffs and things like that. And I'm wondering, in the context of the Millennium Development Goal, how much is that being perpetuated, or do we continue with the colonial mentality of just providing aid to developing countries? And the second question is how much debt cancellation has been achieved so far and how much do we still need to do to enable the countries that are debt laden to come out of that and to really provide the services that can help them achieve their millennium development goals. Thanks. Steve, do you want to touch on that and tie it into perhaps aid delivery, this whole issue of trade policy? Well, I think if you go look at the Secretary General's progress report, one of the things that really jumps out is the, uh, the lament that when in a period of economic downturn or crisis with a stalled Doha process and with uncertainty around moving ahead on climate change and preserving environmental assets, that there's a real concern about how much do those 
um, processes or lack of progress in those in those areas constrain you, as and that and that it's all it's it's not all about just aid dollars and getting better use of those dollars. So, I think there is a consciousness that these other dimensions need to be brought into the uh, consideration. As far as measuring and quality, or you you, you which the uh, earlier question posed. Um, there's, I think there's been a significant shift in mentality um, uh, by recipient governments, by donors, by, 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 by many others about the need for much more effective measurement in this period. And I think that's a sign of the times. And there's, ju- there's just much more consideration of this and much more um, delving into the difficulties of actually getting decent metrics and, and evaluation and streamlining those so that there's not this proliferation um, uh, of a, of a burdenous uh, 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 multiple demands on that score. And how we get there is, I think, not very clear. Um, and one other point about the measurement uh, paradox, I mean, the, this piece that, that, that um, Salil referenced in The Lancet coming out on maternal health, which is out of the University of Washington principally, which is pushing, pushing hard to develop better metrics. You know, it shows a very significant ch- change of the picture of what's happening on maternal mortality and morbidity. And part of it is a result that we've under we didn't have the optic, we didn't have the instrument to see what was happening. And so, running a much more sophisticated and concentrated level of measurement came up with very dramatic. Um, results on debt cancellation. I don't know the answer to that, Paulina. It seems to me that in the Secretary General's report, the debt cancellation figures were quite dramatic. I mean, it looked to me like there had been very dramatic progress. That doesn't mean that there's still not significant, outstanding um, so uh, do you work. Ag- do you agree that yeah, enough debt has been canceled? No, no. By I them? mean, enough. I, no, I don't <laughs> think Stephen's suggesting that either. But I think he's right. That I mean, 40 countries almost. Have seen their debts uh, completely cancelled. If there's a jubilee debt campaign in the room, they'll probably, you know, uh, throw something at me for saying this. But so there's a lot more to be done, <laughs> and uh, you know, we, I mean, the Haiti case just reminded us as to you know what what was happening to Haiti. We, do we need to have a disaster in Haiti to cancel Haiti's debt? We didn't, but that's the way we work. You know, we need to we wait to have a disaster and then say, oh, really, Haiti's got a big debt problem. You know, so. A lot more needs to be done, but uh, debt cancellation is the prettier part of the picture. Trade is uh, not so pretty part, and and it's it's really strange because agricultural subsidies are a big ticket item in Europe and in the U.S. budget. And if we don't have money, let's cut the subsidies. It'll be interesting. Uh, pay attention to the PSD, the White House Presidential Study Directive, because it is not just about assistance; it's about development, and it's supposed to deal with all U.S. government policies, finance, trade. And it will be interesting to see what we hear about that as to whether or not it really does deal with trade policy. There was a question up here. We'll probably have time for two more. So in the back, two people, then we'll have to end it. Hi, my name is Johanna Hellrigal. I work for the UN Millennium Project, which is basically working on the State of the Future Index and uh, the 15 Global Challenges. And I heard a lot today about um, poverty and education. And I was wondering if you could touch a little bit more on gender mutuality, because I feel that a lot of discussions um, 
entail, you know, that in general, but I just feel like, is there anything specific that really has been done to work on gender mutuality? Because it has been said, especially by Ambassador Sweeney Hunt, that if more women were empowered uh, with microfinance, whatever it is that is done, um, the country would ben benefit economically speaking as well as socially because of uh, less corruption in politics, etc. So do you know of anything that's been really specifically done to help the women um, and men have more mutuality? Thank you. So then if you have a thought. Do you think you want to go first? Uh, actually, I don't know about it from the MDG point of view of what's been done, I mean, particularly in terms of figures and so on. But I do know that it is very much on everybody's radar screen who works in this area. Um, I feel very strongly about it, <laughs> being a woman myself who grew up in India. And, uh, and there are every now and then some very refreshing stories that come out which talk about gender neutrality or the fact that women have been empowered even in villages and you know, taking part in the parliamentary processes and so on. And one really interesting story I read just you know, doesn't answer your question directly is about the pink gulabi sari ladies in a village in India. I don't know if you're familiar with the campaign for those of you who aren't. These were women who are in a village in India who have started wearing pink, hot pink saris. Saris are those Indian six-yard you know, clothes that you drape around you. And they carry a baton in their hand. And they make demands on corrupt officials and go after men who beat up their wives and things like that. <laughs> and they've become extremely powerful now, so much so that if there's somebody from the government who comes to the village, they are in the front. They are able to go through the ranks of the men and go stand in the front and talk to them. So I know that work is being done. I cannot give you figures from the large MDG point of view. But from the grassroots level where I work, I see quite a bit is being done. But there's still a very big gap, particularly in HIV, where you know, women are just, you know, just need uh, a lot more empowerment in terms of being able to negotiate uh, their sexual relationship with men. So George, yeah, and maybe Salil can give a perspective. In education, gender is a huge success. And if you look at the data from 10 years ago to today, you see as countries enroll their children, they're getting more and larger percentage of girls in. And in Latin America, what you're finding is that the girls actually are at a higher level of enrollment in secondary and have a much better success in staying in school than the boys do. And we're starting to see that trend in Asia now. So, Bill, do you have any so, thoughts on... Yeah, I think, you know, we, we have a publication on this called Poverty Has a Woman's Face. So, I mean, it's very clear that the problems are very much concentrated amongst women and the, and the whole question of women's rights. And maternal mortality is a good example also where really uh, the, when people say why is the maternal death rate so high, it is actually very often related to the status of women. I, I'm absolutely sure that's the case in South Asia and certainly some parts of Sub-Saharan Africa. So in terms of progress, I think uh, there are only two and that uh, there's really the indicators we have for gender and gender empowerment are not very good in the MDGs. In fact, the Beijing and the Cairo Declaration have much uh, better indicators. So mm -hmm. we always say don't take these global things, <laughs> adapt it to your own context and then you get much more powerful ways. But like for example, if we take this one question about uh, women in leadership positions and in parliaments, uh, that's gone up from 11% to 19%. Now, 
you might say that's very little but uh, you have some countries like Rwanda which are now have the second largest number of uh, women parliamentarians second only to Sweden and if India does go ahead with the reservation the affirmative action the you know quotas for women that 11 to 18 percent is going to shoot up <laughs> considerably <laughs> because you know the numbers are going to go very high so and very quickly in the back Hi, I'm Elisha Dungeorgio with Population Action International, and I wanted to ask for your thoughts about where you see conversations on climate change fitting in in the summit. I saw that the Secretary General's report contains a section about climate change, and following the I don't know, challenging summit in Copenhagen, um, there's been some rumblings that maybe it would help to have a specific MDG on climate change. So I'm just wondering about your thoughts on that, if you think there'd be support for adding another development goal. Thanks. You and that maybe George, or you want to? There's already one environmental be, factor, yeah. but yeah. in terms of the green, using more green technologies, but this, I, my own my own sense is that there there there's going to be a consciousness of the of the of the profound degree in which this impacts achievement, and there's going to be a reluctance to add an additional set of parameters that the people are going to be pulled in, in two directions on this. That, that would be my, my gut reaction, is that's what you're likely to see, is more acknowledgement and discussion, uh, and maybe, maybe it gets fitted around the edges, but th that there, there's going to be resistance. I'm not part of the process deliberations, and so Salil can tell us more about sort of may maybe that, that's a wrong reading and things are going to go another direction, but that would be my sense. No, you've got all the readings right, Stephen, so far. <laughs> and, uh, except the one about which countries get aid from the U.S. <laughs> we'll come back to that one. But certainly on, on uh, climate change, in fact, generally speaking, Stephen's right. I think there is nervousness to open up the discussion on whether we've got the right goals and, and targets and indicators. You know that there have been a couple added, a few indicators and targets have been added recently, including the one on reproductive health. So I don't think there's going to be opening up of which goals, which targets, because there's a nervousness that if you open it, you might unravel the whole thing. It's a miracle that 189 countries could actually agree on anything <laughs> to start with. And if you start that process again, so I think that discussion is going to happen post-2015. Uh, but I mean, if, you, if you invert it, if you invert the telescope and you look at it from the life of a poor household, uh, you know, there's no question that most, most poor people live off natural resources. Their livelihoods rely on water, on, on forest, on land. So you cannot have an MDG discussion without having a discussion on, um, on getting the planet to, you know, to, to remain healthy. So the two things are very intimately interlinked and as Stephen says, there's bound to be a discussion. I think there's also nervousness because uh, 2009 was a kind of year devoted to the climate. 2010, certainly the Secretary General has made it clear that this year is a sort of MDG year and rather than making these uh, competitive agendas, we are trying to see as to how we can bring the two together uh, from the point of view of the lives of poor people. And the last yeah. question, oh, go ahead Could and then the last question. Oh. I just wanted to respond to, is it Maria from Kenya? Or from Pauline. Yeah, Pauline. Pauline. I, I just wanted to say that uh, some of the strongest critique of uh, development aid has come from Kenyans, you know, I mean, and, and it's very interesting to listen to that. And I hope that those questions are always kept alive because I think that's a very important question that you were asking. Um, and I, when I teach my students in communication for social change, I have them actually listen to a lot of Kenyan activists who talk about 
development age and the aid and the questioning of it. So I, I just wanted to say that that's an important question and it should be asked all the time. Thank you. And then the last question in the back. about the role of the media when you talk about um, getting some of these ideas out there and I think you mentioned the role of journalists and there was some discussion about whether you have a you know in your role is disseminating information about these programs journalists have their own particular approach to them and I'm wondering if you can elaborate on that well journalists particularly in the United States but this is true in the rest of the in many parts of the world believe that they are independent they have to be independent and collect all the facts and anybody who is trying to send a message, they're going to look at it very critically. And they're going to s- collect their own facts before they relay that message or before they take parts of that message to relay. So the profession of journalism has its own values, its own routines, which are different from maybe the messages we want to get out. So even in social change communication, journalists don't always buy in. For example, at the grassroots level, I, I do a lot of training which has NGOs come together with journalists so that they can, they can understand each other's jobs and roles and so that maybe there's better reporting on social issues and social problems in any country. And invariably in those training sessions that I conduct, there's a lot of suspicion on the part of journalists about NGOs. They believe that they get funded, that they drive around in these big white cars, that they have five salaries and that that's really what they're doing. And NGOs don't understand the deadline pressures that journalists face and the fact that journalists are going to look for objective, documented information and not just do a, you know, take the press release that the NGO is going to give them and publish that as a PR kind of piece. So NGOs are frustrated that we do all this good work and journalists don't report it. Journalists feel that we have to do independent reporting. So there's always this divide which is very hard to bridge because they come from completely different perspectives and different job pressures and job routines, essentially. Does that answer it? With that, I'd like to give Salil the last word in terms of, you know, you're preparing for this big summit in September. Uh, For this audience, what would you like them to take away? You know, if you can share one message, what would you want that to be? I think to, to a U.S. audience, I'd say please talk to your congressman and to the administration to, you know, Come, come with a good plan to, to the summit and a clear plan of action in the U.S. context. I think that will be the most helpful thing this audience can do, really. Well, thank you very much uh, for our honored guests who are here from New York, from Miami, from here in Washington, as well as all of you for participating in this Global Challenges series. We have them every month or so, and if you uh, email miamiseries at csis.org, you can be put on the email list to get notices of other events. Um, I think these discussions are important because the more that you understand this, the more that you can relay it to those that you're working with and to realize, I'm sure a lot of you, the work that you're doing is also important in a global context. So I thank you for your time and hope you enjoy the rest of your afternoon.